I'm James Day, and this is Focus on Pocus, a podcast about current topics in point-of-care ultrasound. We've had so many varied guests in the field over the past two or three years, so if you feel so inclined, pop over to pocus.org where all the shows are archived. Also, please reach out to us if you have an interesting story to tell that revolves around all things ultrasound. For today, we have an esteemed guest here, a woman of many accolades, Pei Chung McGregor. She's an MD cardiologist. She's an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and an adjunct instructor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. She's board certified in cardiovascular diseases, adult echocardiography, nuclear medicine, and vascular imaging. She completed her medical school at New York University School of Medicine and her internal medicine residency and cardiovascular fellowship at San Antonio Uniform Service Health Education Consortium. She served on active duty in the United States Air Force for 11 years and continues her service as a reservist to date. Dr. McGregor is currently the Director of Ambulatory Cardiology at the Veterans Affair in Boston's healthcare system with interest in cardio-oncology and cardiovascular imaging. Now, in the upcoming new year, Dr. McGregor will be transitioning from the VA to her new role as a medical director for Heartbeat Health, the nation's largest virtual first cardiology platform. Wow, that's an impressive career with cardiology in the United States Air Force. And funny enough, before the show, we seem to have some parallel experiences. I was uh, military dependent and also involved in cardiac sonography. But before we get going, I just want to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about where you're going to land at Heartbeat Health? What is that exactly? Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks for having me on. Um, Heartbeat Health is a first um, and the largest nationwide virtual cardiology um, service. And so I'm really proud to be part of it. Um, I will start my venture with them at the beginning of this upcoming year. And uh, essentially, um, it's a service, a program that um, will provide to um, institutions to assist them with, um, for example, ultrasound diagnostics, um, electrocardiographic mm-hmm. interpretation, as well as um, doing virtual patient visits. Oh, okay. That's 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 going to be very fun. I'm sure you're glad to go there. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm uh, I'm very very excited about this. As a cardiologist, do you practice with a group or are you? sort of a lone wolf practitioner. How has that been for you? Yeah, so at the VA, you know, we have a a core group of general cardiologists and we Mm -hmm. um, collaborate with a lot of the subspecialists. So it's kind of um, like any hospital group setting. Um, Very collegial. It is an academic um, setting. So we do have a lot of trainees, residents and fellows. It's um, been a wonderful experience, I have to say. Yeah, and it looks like your your interests are focused on non-invasive and imaging, which is, you know, really exciting. Hypermeasurements in imaging and sonography. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, that, you know, we measure everything. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think being an echo um, interpreter, one has to um, be pretty uh, stringent with details. 
Um, and so that's kind of how we train our trainees. Um, and that's the expectation we have on ourselves. So I'm happy to provide any insight today on, on Tampanade for the listeners. Well, it's funny too, because it's evolving. You know, there's a level one of, uh, POCUS that physicians use, but what I've seen over the past five, six years is now they're dipping into, you know, measuring tricuspid regurgitation or even, you know, continuity equation or different aspects, EPPS. So they're really starting to begin, especially if your specialty calls for it, yeah. to start to doing all the, the measurements that, you know, you deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think that's good. I mean, focus on objective data, I think, um, should outweigh the, you know, the qualitative um, assessments because our qualitative, my assessment could be a little bit different from, say, yours. Um, and so there's really no true standardization, but you really can't necessarily argue with objective data. And so I think that is a good thing that as a community that we're um, veering more towards that. Yes. So let's go ahead and open up with your requested focus on all things tamponade. So I guess the big opening line is what is cardiac tamponade? Yeah. So cardiac tamponade, I guess another word for it would be pericardial tamponade is, um, it is a potentially life threatening condition. Um, but very important to not misdiagnose. Um, essentially a condition where the um, pericardial pressure, which is the pericardium is the sac that the heart sits in. When the pressure within the sac increases rapidly, and usually that's from a fluid accumulation, um, when that pressure increases rapidly in a short period of time, that may actually lead to the heart's inability to fill and therefore to pump effectively, resulting in potentially uh, hemodynamic collapse. I think it's important for the listeners to understand that this is not necessarily an echocardiographic diagnosis. It's a really a clinical diagnosis, meaning you really have to look at the person in front of you. Um, and usually these patients present um, as an extremist. They usually have very low blood pressure, hypotension. Um, they may be tachycardic. They may have heart failure-like symptoms, for example, shortness of breath, swelling in the legs, elevated neck veins, um, jugular venous distension, and heart sounds may be muffled. But really, it's very important to know that it is a clinical diagnosis. And you use the ultrasound findings to confirm your suspicion. Right. I do remember a few things. Uh, pulses paradoxus and uh, yes. the EKG is pretty low. So you get the complete picture before the probe even goes down, I guess. Well, you could do it, I guess, depends on the situation, of course, as you outlined. So I have a quick question, which always sort of baffled me. Loculated effusions. Uh-huh. Give us a little thought on that. Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, most of the um, pericardial effusions that we typically encounter are circumferential, meaning all around the heart. Um, when you talk about loculated, loculated means that it's not free-flowing. It is consolidated in usually one location, uh, focal, 
location. And so that's usually secondary to trauma or recent surgery. Um, many of the pericardial fusions, the circumferential ones, are likely secondary to something more systemic, you know, inf inflammation, whether that's a viral syndrome or a bacterial. Uh, it could be even secondary malignancy. But loculated means it's not all around the heart. It's usually just in one location. Mm -hmm. And I know when uh, a lot of cardiologists and physicians use Impocus, they'll, they'll eyeball, say you do a subcostal and you'll say, well, it's mild, moderate, or severe. Yeah. But what I always wondered was, what is the amount of fluid that typically goes with each of those? Like, you know, 500 cc's, 200 cc's, how, how is that um, as it relates to, could you fill up a two liter bottle of Coca-Cola with it or something like that? <laughs> I, was, I always just wondered. Yeah, no, there's definitely data on, um, you know, uh, mild, moderate, uh, severe uh, fusion. So typically, if you look at ECHO, the guidelines usually say if um, during end diastole, the fluid around the heart measures less than a centimeter, that's small, or you can call it mild. Um and if it's between one to two centimeters, that's called um, kind of medium size or moderate effusion. And then if it's over two centimeters, that's a large size effusion. Now, you know, usually if it's a large size effusion, it means the accumulation has occurred quite gradually over time to the point mm -hmm. where it's slowly stretching the pericardium. And so it can actually contain a lot more fluid. Now, when we're talking about tamponade, it's, a, it's about not necessarily how much, but rather the timing, it's the duration. It's about the rapid rise, the rapid accumulation. So you can have as little as, say, 100 cc and have tamponade versus 600 cc's and not have tamponade because that happened, you know, over months. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, that's the difference. So I guess at that point, you're looking at what are the characteristic point-of-care ultrasound features of tamponade. Yeah. So I want to, you know, when I teach, um, I just want to simplify things. And hopefully um, this is not too simple for the listeners. But essentially, there are three major um, echocardiographic findings. Obviously, you have to have pericardial fusion first. So you have to see that black rim, um, i.e. fluid around the heart. And the three um, findings would be, number one, chamber collapse, and we'll talk about what that means, dilated IVC, inferior vena cava, mm -hmm. and the last um, is interventricular dependence. So um, when we talk about chamber collapse, I specifically mean the right side of the heart. And it's because when tamponade occurs, Again, remember, it's a failing problem, right? The fluid around the heart accumulates rapidly. And therefore, when the heart is trying to fill, it's hitting that wall because the fluid around the heart won't allow the heart to fill anymore. So it's a filling problem. Mm -hmm. And that really affects a lower pressure chamber, such as the right side of the heart, um, because it's usually exposed to a much lower pressure system than the left side of the heart. Um, and so the right side of the heart will, will typically collapse um, more so than the left. 
Um, so the right atrium usually is one of the first signs um, that you might see in tamponade. So probably the most sensitive. Um, it collapses. The, and, and really, the longer the duration of each chamber collapse, the worse um, the tamponade is. And obviously, the higher the specificity of these signs. So you can have right atrial collapse at end diastole, that is ventricular diastole. Mm -hmm. And you can have right ventricular early diastolic collapse. Um, so that's number one, the right side collapsing. Number two, dilated IVC. And, and remember, IVC is connected directly to the right atrium. And so it itself reflects um, essentially right heart pressures. And in the setting of a tamponade, the right side of pressures are elevated. Therefore, you'll see um, very large IVC. Usually, that's over 21 millimeters in size. And really, without really significant respiratory change, um, meaning that it'll stay dilated the whole time, whether you're breathing in or out. And if one were pretty facile with... Uh, pulse Doppler, you could pulse Doppler um, the hepatic veins, and you'll you might be able to see an exaggerated reduction in diastolic flow flow, mm -hmm. with also an increase in diastolic flow reversal. And lastly, the interventricular dependence. Again, you know, because you have all that fluid around the heart, the RV and the LV are even more interconnected. And in inspiration, there's more flow going into the right side of the heart, pushing the septum into the left side. And along, um, at the same time, the pulmonary veins actually have less flow going back to the left side of the heart. And therefore, again, a reduction in cardiac output, something like um, that you alluded to earlier, pulses paradoxes. So you actually drop your um, blood pressure during inspiration. Um, and then just, um, it's true for expiration. Everything reverses. So the right side actually has decreased filling during expiration, but the left side actually has increased filling. So if you were to do pulse Doppler across the mitral valve, you'll see over, if you see 25% difference mm -hmm. between expiration and inspiration, that's significant versus 40% across the tricuspid valve. And on the right side, again, it's higher during inspiration than for expiration. And that reduction in cardiac output we mentioned earlier that links up to the clinical findings of pulses paradoxes. You could pulse at the LVOT, the left ventricular outflow tract. And if you see a reduction during inspiration of that flow out of the heart, that's a sign of, um, you know, that it's being impaired. Um, I do want to mention a few caveats, though, because not, you yes. know, if one were to have severe pulmonary hypertension, meaning the right side of the heart is now seeing elevated pressures over time, the uh, you might actually not see any chamber collapse for the RA or the RV. Um, so that's one thing for that. The other caveat for um, IVC is you don't always see dilated um, IVC in the study of tamponade. And when you don't, you should think about one, loculated effusion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, could this be post-surgical, post-trauma? You know, 
or in a hypovolemic state. And thirdly, for the interventional dependence, um, one should think, okay, if that, if we don't see presence of interventricular dependence, it may be because the LVEDP, the left ventricular end diastolic pressure is so, so high. For example, in severe aortic regurgitation or um, in folks who are on positive pressure ventilation. Yeah. And when you were talking about all that, I was just thinking of, you know, the next question, which would be, um, how does one go about and acquire these images to evaluate pericardial fusions and tamponade? And, you know, I think of the D sign and the collapsing right ventricle, the classic ones. But yeah, how do you acquire these images? Yeah, so obviously you need more than one view. Um, typically, I would say, again, you know, three major views would be parasternal view, which is, you know, mm-hmm. left side of the fourth intercostal space. Mm-hmm. Um, you should be able to see any evidence of right ventricular collapse, um, septal bounds, and certainly the effusion itself. The apical views um, will provide you a better visualization of the right atrium as well as the right ventricle. And then that's where you can pulse um, across the mitral valve, the tricuspid valve, and also at the LVOT. And the subcostal view is a great one where you can actually end mode across the RV and the LV and detect any evidence of interventricular dependence there. And of yeah. course, that's where you can see the um, IVC as well. That's a good move, definitely. I forgot about the end mode thing. That's That does really illustrate it quite nicely. Yeah, and I think, you know, we don't talk about M-mode enough because I, I think a lot of the, you know, new trainees think it's a bit more antiquated, you know, but it's got such great temporal resolution. Um, it, it's just, it's underutilized, I think. Yeah, and I know the IVC evaluation is sort of changing the 50% sniff test and you can put an M-mode and now we're talking about Vexus and different things that are that are happening. Um, so speaking of that, as all those things go, so what can present as maybe a false positive pericardial effusion? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think this is a very important um, point to make because if there was actually no pericardial fusion present and one were to send somebody for pericardial synthesis, that certainly could lead to, you know, potentially catastrophic outcomes. So it's very important to know some of these false positives. Um, and again, mm-hmm. I have three things for the listeners. Um, one, you know, you want to think, is this truly a pericardial fusion or could this be plural fusion? Um, and so pleural fusion, if you're on the, at the peristernal long axis view, and you can see the descending aorta, and the effusion is posterior to the descending aorta, one should think about pleural infusion, okay? And pleural fusion, oftentimes, too, you'll see uh, moving lung tissue within it as well. Um other thing is, could this simply just be pericardial fat pad? And remember, fluid is black on ultrasound. And fat, it's not fully, fully black. It actually has some echogenicity mm-hmm. um, and typically moves with the heart. So, um, and again, this is more anterior to the RV. One can see it on the personal long view or um, on subcostal views. 
And thirdly is whether or not the effusion you're seeing is actually just ascites itself. Um, and ascites is generally seen um, only on the subcostal views. Um, it's anterior to the RV. Um, and usually once you see the liver, that's free flowing, not, not the heart itself, the liver along with the falciform ligament. So if you see the falciform ligament and the liver, that's kind of just swinging in and out. That's ascites. That's not a pericardial fusion. Oh yeah. Those are good. So, um, I think we're coming to the end of our podcast, Dr. Pei Chung McGregor. It was great having you on today's podcast. It's an honor, and we thank you for all you do to increase patient safety. Good luck in your new gig at Heartbeat Health, and thanks for your service. Thank you so much. For more POCUS-style topics, you can follow us on Facebook at POCUS Cert Academy and Twitter at POCUS Academy.